Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. On today's show, we'll discuss the recently adopted amendments to the Investment Advisor Marketing Rule in a new statement from the SEC alerting investors to a rising number of investment scams. For our interview segment, we welcome in former NSCP chair and teleworking compliance expert Craig Watanabe to do a deep dive on how firms can best prepare their compliance programs for the increase in telework and the types of supervision, cybersecurity, and data privacy issues that are involved there. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the What's On My Mind series, where we'll look at the new DOL-prohibited transaction exemption for investment advice fiduciaries and the greatest comedy centered around Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, the SEC Office of Investor Education and Advocacy warned of an uptick in investment scams and cautioned investors to protect themselves and others from becoming victims of investment fraud. In its alert, the SEC offered guidance on how to identify and avoid Ponzi schemes, fake certificates of deposit, CDs, fraudulent stock promotions, and community-based financial scams. On the Ponzi scheme front, the SEC stated that the hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme include, one, guarantees of high investment returns, two, unlicensed or unregistered sellers, and three, returns that are overly consistent as investment values typically fluctuate over time. On the fake CDs front, the SEC recommended that investors look out for claims on websites selling CDs that offer high interest rates without penalties for early withdrawals, that don't promote any other financial products, maybe direct investors to transfer funds abroad or to an account with a name that doesn't match that of the listed financial institution, and finally, listing the clearing partners that are supposedly SEC registered. On the stock promotions involving COVID-19 claims, the SEC cautioned investors about stock promotions that claim publicly traded companies are positioned to profit immensely from the COVID-19 pandemic as a result of the development of products or services that can prevent, detect, or cure COVID-19. Finally, on the community-based financial scams front, the SEC encouraged investors to be on the lookout for community-based financial schemes as fraudsters sometimes target the members of identifiable groups, such as individuals of a common ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, and age, and exploit the trust and friendship within such communities. Moving to the next headline, we at the Compliance in Context podcast would like to offer you our audience, a little bit of insight into the magic of recorded media. One minute, you're on top of the world, providing valuable content to listeners about how the SEC abruptly pulls a highly anticipated discussion of changes to the Investment Advisors Act, advertising rules, and there's no timetable for when the rule proposal might get approved. And the next minute, bam, the SEC comes out of nowhere to approve the amendments the same day that the the previously recorded podcast drops. Well, A little bit of egg on my face, but regardless of all that, let's go ahead and talk about what was actually approved. So, consistent with the original proposal, the final rule will prohibit fraudulent and misleading claims. It will permit testimonials and endorsements, a major shift from before, but it does require the disclosure of whether those testimonials and endorsements are from clients and if any compensation has been provided. The final rule also allows for third-party ratings, subject to disclosure and other conditions. It puts a a large amount of conditions on the use of performance information in advertising. Specifically, it requires firms to adopt procedures and impose other requirements around the use of hypothetical performance. Some of the changes in the final rule from the proposed rule, uh, while the final definition of advertisement will expand on the existing definition to encompass quote, investment advisory services with regard to securities, end quote. It does exclude both uh, extemporaneous live oral communications and one-on-one communications, except when those communications include hypothetical performance. The final rule will not add more conditions for performance advertising directed at a retail audience, versus, say, an institutional-type investor. And finally, the final rule does not require advisors to designate specific employees to review and approve advertising prior to dissemination. Additionally, the SEC amended Form ADV and the Books and Records Rule to increase available data to support SEC inspection and enforcement procedures. The final rule is set to go into effect 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. 
some a few of the feedback, uh, a little bit of feedback from the various commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Lee and Commissioner Crenshaw noted that the improvements to the outdated and patchwork advertising regime were certainly going to be beneficial. Commissioner newly elected chair, Roisman, commended the final rule for its removal of the, quote, one-size-fits-all pre-review requirement. And Commissioner Peirce applauded the effort of the commission to update its regulations to reflect the changes in our industry and investor practices. But she did have some reservations that the release may not be clear enough in certain parts and that its principle-based requirements could lead to, in some cases, a steady flow of requests for interpretation and clarification as advisors try to work through and, and implement the final rule. Well, if there's one subject matter area that I think everyone has really had to get more comfortable with in 2020, it's the idea of teleworking or working from home. Certainly, everybody in some form or fashion has felt the pandemic and its effects. And this is obviously one of the biggest ways that you have many, many companies, firms, businesses across the United States and across the globe that are now working solely in a remote environment. With us today, I am very pleased to welcome in an expert in this area and someone who is passionate about firms finding the right fit when it comes to not just teleworking, but also some of the related cybersecurity and data privacy issues that are involved there. Mr. Craig Watanabe. Craig, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Craig has been a financial advisor and the director of IA compliance at DFP DFP Investments since April 2018. Uh, He entered the securities industry in 1983, is a seasoned veteran at this point, and has been a successful financial planner, branch manager, operations manager, CCO, and chief operating officer. Mr. Watanabe has broker-dealer and investment advisor compliance experience covering retail brokerage, market-making, research, investment banking, insurance, commodities, and retail investment advisory and ERISA plans. So we are very excited to tap into that depth and breadth of expertise. Let's start as we delve into this topic area. Certainly, no no one, when the year 2020 hit 12 months ago, no one had this idea of the importance of teleworking and the work from home environment as being one of the central issues of the year. But I think there was, even prior to 2020, at least some trend towards decentralization when it came to the um, activities, certainly in our industry, the investment management space, but really just as it related to business in general. But maybe talk a little bit about, if you would, how the pandemic kind of impacted that, that trend towards decentralization. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the best examples just hit the news yesterday. Uh, Warner Brothers Studios announced yesterday that going forward, all of their new release movies will be released simultaneously in movie theaters, as well as via on-demand streaming. And so I think we're seeing decentralization there. You no longer have to go to a movie theater, a centralized location to view a first-run movie. You know, you can now stream them. Uh, It's well expected that others will follow suit. I think another great example is look at how decentralization has impacted retail. You know, people don't have to go to stores to buy things anymore. You can buy it right with your phone, you know, and an Internet connection. And, of course, our industry is no exception. We are seeing uh, strong trends toward decentralization, which were evident, as you mentioned, prior to the pandemic. But I think just got a, um, a huge kick forward with the pandemic. And what I think is interesting is most experts believe that this trend will have a residual impact. In other words, when this pandemic is ultimately over, we probably will not go all the way back down to baseline pre-pandemic levels. We're going to see increased teleworking uh, going forward, and that trend is going to continue to increase well beyond the pandemic. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting response, and I, I know we'll would love to dig into that topic a little bit more. I know we're, there's some some other questions I've got planned that I think kind of touch on that, but certainly you're seeing 
I think already some aspects of that. I mean, I know one of the things we'll talk a little bit about more in depth later is some of the new FINRA rules around brand supervision, right? And that's maybe one of the first kind of shoes to drop that that related to something that probably took an aggressive, maybe a, a quantum leap forward that they were going to allow that temporary rule as it related to supervision of branch offices um, and to do that remotely. And obviously, given the COVID-19 pandemic and the things involved, it makes sense to do it now. But who knows that that could, you know, that temporary rule couldn't end up being more of a permanent rule. But we'll we'll get to more of that here in a little bit. I, I did want to you, you mentioned something else. And again, it relates directly to this idea of decentralization. If you have a lot of compliance officers who previously were able to when they would go to that centralized location, they would really be able to keep eyes and ears on probably a lot of the activities that they were supposed to be supervising. A lot of the things that their job entailed in order to effectively administer that firm's compliance program. As compliance officers and general counsels and other practitioners in the space have now been forced into this teleworking environment, talk about some of those compliance challenges and what some of the the ways that they may be able to help, help navigate those. You know, I think you bring up a really good point. And this is not unique to our industry in compliance, but what we know is that supervision and compliance, it is a uniquely human endeavor and good communication is critical. And uh, there, I've been studying this, but it's interesting. Um, there's a pretty well-known research paper that concluded that face-to-face communication is 34 times more effective than email. And what we know is that the use of email has exploded since the beginning of the pandemic. Email usage is way up. Telephone calls in, and, and face-to-face communications, conversely, are way down. And, and so initially, I was very concerned about this trend. I looked at it for myself. I actually measured my own email usage, and, and I tried to track my own uh, number of telephone calls and, and um face-to-face meetings that I was making. And sure enough, no surprise, email was way up, calls way down, face-to-face meetings, almost nil. Hmm. Uh, And so I became concerned about that, you know, that that I was going to lose effective communication. But then I started to read that email engagement during the pandemic has also exploded. And I think the best example of that is email marketing. Email marketing has never really been, uh, I think, seen as extremely effective. However, email marketers are publishing left and right that their engagement is up 200, 300%. It's way up during the pandemic. So I think what is happening is we as people are adapting. And since we no longer have that face-to-face as much, or we're not using the phone as much, our primary methods of communication now tend to be email, the email communications are becoming more effective, right? And so I I become less concerned about the um, increased use of email. Now, that having been said, I did make a commitment personally to make more phone calls. I said, you know, it's still a better form of communication. I need to make more phone calls. So I I make it a point to try to put those on my calendar and schedule calls, more calls regularly. And I use, um, you know, video conferencing and video calls, one-on-one video calls more than I did before. I'm, I'm doing probably two to three a week now. And before I was doing maybe one every other week or Something not a lot, but I, I made a conscious effort to increase that. And so where I'm where I'm going with this is with regard to um, effectively establishing, you know, and maintaining the continuity of our compliance programs. When you have multiple compliance officers, uh, I think one thing that is critical is to think about communication and, and really be more focused on how you communicate and being focused on the fact that certain mediums are more effective, but even less effective mediums like email are, as we adapt, uh, they're becoming more effective. And so to take advantage of that, I think, is 
is really critical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you just touched on there and that, again, kind of remote supervision, right? You can, you can be thoughtful. You can be purposeful and selective in identifying ways where, okay, you're not in the office anymore. And you can't just pop by the water cooler or pop by somebody's cube or pop by you know, somebody's office and have a conversation with them or maybe get eyes and ears on some activity that's going on. But what you can do is be thoughtful and purposeful in scheduling meetings with those persons, getting in front of them, having a may not be a face to face meeting in person, but a face to face meeting over Zoom or WebEx or Teams and finding ways to do that. What about, though, because I think another challenge, in addition to that supervision aspect, must relate to the cybersecurity part, right? I mean, I think certainly well, one thing I'll really applaud the regulators on that I think they've done a really good job since the pandemic is continued to push out a lot of really good touch points as it relates to cybersecurity, pandemic frauds, continued kind of uh, uh, vigilance um, in, in alerting the investor public as well as those professionals in the investment management space to, to, again, stay focused and keep their guard up. But talk about how in the day-to-day trenches, you know, how should compliance officers be thinking about teleworking cybersecurity? Well, that's a great question. And I think one of the best ways to think about it is to understand that our model of cybersecurity is evolving. So currently, Our model of cybersecurity is what I call a fortress model. And a fortress means that we have walls, in in this case, firewalls. And then we have doors, and those doors have locks, and then we have keys. And the idea of the fortress model is you keep all the bad stuff out, and everything inside is safe. Well, the evolution that we're seeing, and again, this is consistent with decentralization, that is a centralized model of cybersecurity. We're seeing decentralization with teleworking, and teleworking is a decentralized model. It doesn't fit very well with the Fortress model. And so the evolution that we are seeing is we're seeing cybersecurity evolve from a Fortress model to an endpoint security model. So what is an endpoint security model? Endpoints are any device that accesses the network. Could be a phone, tablet, laptop, Desktop, doesn't matter if the desktop is in your office or it's in your home, right? The model is evolving towards securing the endpoint, right? And I, and I think that model is, is again, um, much better suited to a decentralized model. And, and that's pretty much how I see cybersecurity being impacted. And I think if you think about cybersecurity more along the lines of protecting endpoints as opposed to the fortress model, then I think a lot of things will make a lot more sense. Yeah, I I really want to dig a little deeper on that because I think that's a really interesting point. And I guess a couple questions, follow-up questions come to mind as you're talking about this kind of endpoint security model. Talk a little bit more about, I guess, maybe, you know, you, you're seeing some of these trends, right, of people moving from the fortress model to the endpoint model. But where are we, right? If you had to scale it on, on zero to 10, zero being all fortress model, 10 being completely shift over to the endpoint security model, where are we right now? And, you know, what maybe what specific things have you seen as a result of the pandemic that may have pushed us uh, the, the momentum towards the endpoint security model even further? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And I think, you know, it's uh, it's easy to think about what I just talked about, Fortress versus endpoint in a binary way. But really what has been happening is is they've been uh, evolving slowly and overlapping. So really, you know, if you were to describe a cybersecurity model for any one firm, it's probably not completely fortress or completely endpoint. It's probably some combination hybrid of the two. And so with that in mind, you know, where are we as an industry? I would say we're probably somewhere... Um, on a scale of you know zero being completely fortress and ten being completely endpoint, I'd say we're probably somewhere about a three or a four, and we're moving towards you know ten. 
mm-hmm. being the model. I don't think we're quite there yet. So uh, just about every firm that I can think of has some elements of a fortress and has some elements of endpoint security. You know, yeah. and I think that's the best way to think about it, not in a binary way, but Got to it. think about it in terms of a continuum. Yeah. Well, so so then let's talk about, okay, so we know firms are trying to execute and continue to operate essentially without any interruption, despite teleworking, despite working from home. What tips or tricks <laughs> maybe do you have, or again, just given kind of your experience and obviously you're, you're very passionate about the issue, do, do you have any tips or, or best practices that you could pass on for folks who, uh, to, for them to be thinking about what, you know, what they should be focused on as it relates to that subject? I do. And, and as opposed to, you know, answering in the scope of a podcast, I think, you know, this question could go well beyond the scope of a podcast. And I wanted to refer the listeners to uh, an article that I wrote uh, that was published in NSCP Currents, the May 2020 edition called 12 Tips for Teleworking Cybersecurity. That's uh, a fairly extensive discussion of and an answer to the question that you just asked. But I think I can kind of uh, it's sort of like a Cliff Notes version <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> sure. And so I think I think the one that is again going to be consistent with this idea of endpoint security. So think about this. One of the one of the big challenges with endpoint security is when you talk about uh, endpoints that are outside of the network. They're outside of the fortress, meaning it could be someone's personal phone. It could be their home computer. You don't have the same knowledge or controls. You, you need to know what hardware and software are being used on those endpoints. What are the end, You need to identify all of the endpoints and identify them in terms of what hardware, what software, and how are they accessing the uh, network. And so I think tip number one in my article was make sure that your employees are not using outdated hardware and software. This is something that when the regulators come out with their guidance and they talk about cybersecurity, they have never mentioned that one of the most critical and one of the most robust things that you can do to improve your firm's cybersecurity is to upgrade your hardware and software. Hmm. We know that hackers are continually evolving, they're getting more sophisticated, but so are cyber defenses. You know, just a simple act of upgrading an iPhone from an iPhone 8 to an iPhone 11, you get tremendous additional security. We don't think about when we upgrade mm-hmm. our devices in terms of security, you know, and I think that upgrade cycles were previously driven by usability. You know, you don't have the latest features, you can't do this, you can't do that, so it's time to upgrade, right? Or it's gotten kind of banged up. Well, I think that what will now, you know, come into the evaluation of when to upgrade is um, upgrading with security in mind. You know, if you upgrade a two- or three-year-old computer, that computer is still very functional, still probably does everything that you needed to do. But we know now that that two- or three-year-old computer does not have the very best security. Right. And that, in and of itself, is should be a consideration for upgrade. And so what I think is happening, whereas a lot of firms, you know, their upgrade cycle, if they had that aged inventory, so they knew all of the hardware and software, and their upgrade cycles were maybe typically five to eight years. Mm-hmm. Now I think they're shortening. And I think they're going to get to the point where those upgrade cycles are going to shorten all the way to two to three years, hmm. right? And, you, and, you're, and you're upgrading not for functionality, you're upgrading for security. So I think that's something very important that's going to start happening. So tip number one, make sure your employees are not using outdated hardware or software. And in my opinion, I put that as tip number one in the article because I think that that is the very best thing that you can do. If I um, go on to tip number two, I think the second best thing that you can do is um, two-factor authentication. So as we know, in the Fortress model, you have walls, you have doors, those doors have locks, and the locks have keys. Well, we know that most cyber breaches entail a compromised user. In other words, the easiest way to breach the Fortress is to steal somebody's key. (laughs) And if all you have to do 
is have their username and password, and then you can open the door and walk into the safe zone and masquerade as an authenticated user by simply having the username and password. That's the easiest way in, and that's why most breaches entail a compromised user stealing someone's credentials. So what two-factor authentication does is it requires not one key but two keys, and there are different levels of two-factor authentication, but the very best and most practical applications for 2FA, two-factor authentication, utilize the authentication apps, you know, like Symantec or Duo is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, when you implement two-factor authentication, what is uh, really important, I think, is to be mindful and intentional. There are three critical things that need to be secured. One is your Windows login. So whenever you turn on your computer or you wake your computer up after it's gone to sleep, you know, and you have to enter your credentials, well, you want that to be secured by two-factor authentication. Number two, email accounts. It's really bad if you get an email account compromised. So securing email accounts via two-factor authentication, really important. And then number three, your file server, right? So when we talk about the crown jewels of cybersecurity, the crown jewels are your data. You have to secure your data. And so securing the file server with two-factor authentication, again, really important. And I mentioned these apps like Duo. Duo can do all three. It can secure all three with the very same app. You can protect all three of those. And if you do those three things, you've really done the most uh, that you can Right to uh, really improve the cybersecurity. So I think that two-factor authentication, again, another um, really important uh, tip after making sure that you're upgrading your hardware and software. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's a great point. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's actually something that, well, one, let me first say, that for those that haven't read Craig's article for May, <laughs> go back and read the article because it's fantastic. But to follow up on a couple of your other points that that you made, uh, you're, you're starting to see a lot of regulators also even engage in the same kind of security protections. I know, for instance, when we help support a firm and we're helping to do their regulatory filings and we are logging into the FINRA IARD system, that oftentimes they are now requiring dual factor authentication and they will send you a a duo push to your phone in order to help secure that your ability to log in to, to that you know specific username or firm specific username i want to shift a little bit and it was something that we touched on kind of near the the top of of our conversation and and ask a couple questions on supervision specifically again we we touched on it a little bit right in being purposeful in um, how we can try to establish effective uh, communications with folks, even though we're outside of a centralized location. But maybe let's start with, you know, what what are some other suggestions that you might have uh, for how to best handle remote supervision? And, and, and as a follow-up, as you're kind of thinking about your answer for some of those tips, I'd also really like to get your feel for, you know, what, what is a good benchmark? What are some good things that firms and compliance officers can hang their hat on when it comes to what, what is good supervision? That's a really good question. And so my, uh, my answer is uh, the benchmark for good supervision, it has two components. So there are two components of good supervision. One is to get the job done accurately. That should be a given. But number two, to get the job done timely. Mm. Right? And I think that's how I would define good supervision. However, um, when you take those two things together, that means this definition tends to be fairly reactive. And so what I always like to talk about is going from good to great. So that's good supervision. What is great supervision? Well, great supervision takes good and goes over and above by being helpful. And, and that should be proactive. So great supervision is not only getting the job done accurately and timely, but going over and above and being helpful. And that's where that communication can really be critical. So let me use an example in compliance. Let's say that we are asked to review a certain piece of advertising, 
and we review this advertising, if we were to simply get the job done, you know, mark it up and say, you know, it's, it's either approved or it's not in good order. And if it's not in good order, these are the reasons why, and then send it back. And let's say we did that time. Let's say we got it. Let's say we had a, yeah, a firm policy that all advertising reviews were done within 24 hours. So that's good service, mm-hmm. right? We got it done and we got it done timely and we sent it right back. But what would define great service? Great service would be uh, becoming really helpful. And how we might do that in compliance is let's say that we had this piece submitted, and let's say that we knew someone else who was trying to do the same thing but doing it a little bit differently. We might say, you know what, I'm going to connect you with so-and-so because I noticed that what you're trying to do is similar to what they're doing, and I think if you guys compare notes, you guys might be able to help each other and come out with, you know, ways to refine your your marketing techniques and be more effective and grow your business. And the best way to do that would be with a phone call. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's being over and above and helpful. And maybe I know that that's there's some mixed feelings with regard to grammatical corrections. You know, but actually, you know, redlining, you know, and making grammatical corrections in uh, a submitted piece or making editorial suggestions that are not necessarily compliance related. Yeah. Well, you you bring up a couple of things. One, I can definitely tell you that for a lot of the uh, advisors and and broker dealers that I support, that they definitely see I'm an English major and an English nerd at heart. That was my that was my undergrad focus. So they get to they get to see a lot of comments about the Oxford comma from time to time, which does add clarity for compliance purposes, I will say. But regardless of that, I wanted to build on something that you said, because I think it's a really interesting and cool point, which is sometimes doing great service at the outset when you get something like that ultimately benefits you because then you don't have a lot of the additional back and forth that occurs after that. Right. So if you get a marketing piece in, maybe there's a question or two that's in it. And to your point, you turn it around in 24 hours, but maybe you don't add the context for why you provided that feedback. Or maybe, again, you don't follow up with that phone call to say, hey, but I think if you connect with so and so because they had a similar issue, you might really be able to arrive at the right answer correctly. If you do that, like you said, and provide that great service on the front end then that can be really, really helpful and ultimately may cure any of the future problems so that you may not end up having to have to review that piece again. Or if you do, it's a much more streamlined review. And now, because you took the time to do great service on the front end, you actually save yourself time in the long run. You bring up a great point. You know, I, I like to refer that refer to that in terms of making a deposit of political capital which at some future date, when I need a favor, I may be able to make a withdrawal on that political capital. So if you do, if you do a good job and you go over and above and you have built up a sufficient balance of political capital, that's something that you can draw upon later when and if needed. And I think that's, that's all part of being a good compliance officer. So we talked about you know, good supervision and great supervision. Well, I would say the same is true in compliance. You know, there are levels of good compliance and there are levels of great compliance. And I think, you know, the example I wanted to talk about was um, at one of my prior firms when I was the chief compliance officer, I insisted that all of my compliance officers be not just proficient in our technology, but become expert. And and that could be anything from, you know, the, the Pershing uh, interface or Schwab interface or, you know, our perform- performance management software, our compliance software, you know, our billing systems. They, I, I insisted that these are all tools. And like any craftsman, the more you're familiar with and the more skillful you are with those tools, the more skillful you are as a tradesman. And... Well, the other thing that we did is we had an, uh, an integration and onboarding team. And of course, we had compliance embedded in that integration and onboarding team. And whenever there was training on software, it was my compliance officers that did the training because they were inevitably the most knowledgeable. Whenever someone had a question throughout the firm, hey, you know, uh, I, I have to do this and I don't know how to do it. 
they always got referred to the compliance department because it was our staff that was regarded within the firm as the expert on the technology mm-hmm. and how to use, how to do, you know, these uh, technological things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I bring that up because, again, going over and above and being a great compliance department, you know, I think that that was, you know, all part and parcel of that idea of being not just a good compliance department, but a great compliance department. Mm-hmm. So let's let's tie up a couple things on the uh, discussion on the teleworking. And then I got a couple fun questions to ask you here at the end. But, sure. but to tie up to tie up some things on the teleworking front, I know we, we mentioned it actually at the top. But I would be really interested to get kind of some of your closing thoughts just on the environment in which we find ourselves right now and kind of where we are in the midst of the pandemic and continuing to try to execute as we administer the firm's compliance program and maybe tie in, if you would, just a couple of your thoughts on, again, that that uh, very recent FINRA announcement that allows for firms uh, to do remote audits as it relates to their, the, the supervision of branch offices. Yeah. So uh, interestingly, I've actually done some remote audits in 2020. And of course, all of the audits that I'll be doing in 2021 will also be uh, remote. And, you know, initially I had mixed feelings. I thought, you know, I'm not so sure how effective this will be. But having done a couple now, I actually feel pretty good about the level of efficacy and how effective these remote auditing sessions can be. You know, um, one of the things that I have some unique experience with is for my entire career of 38 years, I've been a financial advisor. I'm still a financial, I'm I'm producing compliance officer, so I'm still a financial advisor. And on that side of my business, you know, I was concerned about not being able to meet with clients and having to convert to telephone calls and Zoom calls. And after eight months of experience, I think that anxiety has gone way down. I found that, you know what? These methods of communication are pretty effective. They're much mm-hmm. more effective than I had initially thought. And and I think my feeling is, is similar with regard to on the compliance side. You know, these remote communications, these remote audits, uh, I'm feeling a lot more confident that they're actually pretty effective, uh, much more so than I did eight months ago. And, and one of the things that I think is helpful is when I think about doing a branch inspection, I like to differentiate and think about each item that I'm tasked with in order to um, fulfill my responsibility in inspecting that office. And I like to think about which tasks lend themselves well to being conducted remotely versus which do not. So as an example, you know, if I'm checking to see if that branch, if they've got all of their registrations in good order and they've completed all of their continuing education, well, I don't need to be doing that on site. I can do that just as effectively remotely. There is no difference when I do those kinds of reviews, whether it's done on site or whether it's done off site. And so there's there's no drop off there. The things that I think do maybe lose some efficacy that are much better done on site are number one, I always like to take a detailed tour of the office and I'm eyes wide open. I'm looking around. I'm looking on the walls. I'm looking in trash cans. I'm looking on desks. I'm just looking to see whatever I might see and trying to be open-minded. And just I, I just want to see the environment. I want to see right. who's there. I want to see who's not there. You know, and, and we lose some of that. So in my last remote audit, I asked the person to take me on a video tour. So they actually used their phone camera. And they took me on a video tour and I said, oh, let me let me look, uh, you know, in this room over here. Let me look over (laughs) in this room over here. And and, uh, you know, I I thought, hey, this actually works pretty well. And uh, the other thing that I think is, is important is whenever I do a branch inspection, I sit down and interview every person in that branch. Right. And obviously I can't you know that that's more difficult remotely. I scheduled phone calls. If I couldn't do it in person, I scheduled phone calls with every person in the branch. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those phone calls went pretty well. Yeah. You know, so um, when all was said and done and I completed the reports and I completed the inspections, I actually felt pretty good mm-hmm. about this process. 
And, um, you know, I mentioned that um, with regard to um, teleworking, I think we're going to see some residual impact. Well, uh, I think there's a good chance that when 2021 goes by and this rule expires because it's just a temporary rule through the end of 2021, we may see remote audits become a permanent fixture within the future. I think the regulators are finding that as well. They're finding that they don't need to necessarily come out and do in-person audits on each and every case either. And so I think that's just part of the evolution in terms of remote supervision and remote inspections. Yeah. No, I I think you're spot on. Actually, episode two of the podcast, the the first full full episode we had on um, Natasha Greiner, who is an associate director with OC, and she had a similar story. That, that you did, which is that, you know, they did, they were doing an inspection, uh, an examination, I should say, of, of an advisor. And they, they took her and her entire team on a virtual tour of the office, which again, part of the ability for folks to kind of, you know, uh, adapt and change with the times in a really positive way. Let's actually move. And I, I know for some of our listeners, certainly they have uh, probably seen your name before and maybe even seen you speak before. You've been very active with the NSCP. I know you served for six years on the board of directors and was even you were even chairman of the board back in 2013. You've continued to be involved with the publications committee. We heard earlier about some of the articles that that you wrote. But most recently, you were the honored recipient of the Joan Hinchman Award. And I just wanted maybe if you wanted to share a, a, a few thoughts about Joan Hinchman, who I, I know you uh, got to know and just your experience in receiving the award. Well, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Winning the Joan Hinchman Award was the honor of my lifetime. Uh, it, it truly was the pinnacle of my career. Uh, and, and I don't say that lightly. And, and part of that is because of the relationship that I had with Joan. So for the entire year 2013, I had scheduled phone calls for one hour every Friday with Joan. And over the course of those, you know, multiple phone calls, and of course, I, I had known Joan for decades prior to that, but, you know, it was really that year when I was chairman of the board, 2013, where we had those regularly scheduled hour phone calls, that we really got to know each other, we got to bond, and you know, I really came to appreciate who she was, what she had done, not just for NSCP, but what she had done for our profession. Having our own association legitimizes our profession. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look at other, other back office functions within the financial services industry, they don't have their own societies. They don't have their own associations. We do. And ours is very robust. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is thanks to Joan Hinchman. And all the things that she did, the foresight that she had, you know, some, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, and, yeah. and, I, and I do appreciate that. And that special relationship, getting to know her on a personal level, you know, I think is what made it so special for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think they could have found a uh, more deserving recipient. And I know personally it has been such an honor getting to to know you and to learn from you and getting to work with you uh, over the last couple of years, uh, both in and outside of the publications committee. And so I'm very appreciative of that. And, and obviously, I'm so glad that, um, that, that you got the award. Let's get you out of here with one really, really fun question and certainly maybe something to think about, which is, What's the number one meal? The moment that, you know, some of the restrictions are over and there's no fear or threat of the pandemic looming. Where's the first restaurant that like you're going to go and spend, you know, an entire evening at (laughs) indulging? That's a that's a great question, and I think my answer will will reinforce the fact that I consider myself a pretty simple person. So uh, on Thanksgiving, just a few days ago, I went out to Carl's Jr. and I ordered my favorite double Western bacon cheeseburger. And I'm going to tell you, I would take a double Western bacon cheeseburger over any turkey any day. And when I when I want to go someplace to celebrate my feel good food, my favorite food. 
is a Carl's Jr. double Western bacon cheeseburger. So I see no reason whatsoever that when I celebrate the end of this pandemic, I won't eat a double Western bacon cheeseburger. That is absolutely what you should do, Craig. Let me just reinforce it for you now. Uh, It's fantastic. And um, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, This has really been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I know you offered so many uh, great insights for for our listeners. So thank you for that. And, you know, would would love to have you back on the on the show here at some point. Thanks again. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today's final segment features another installment in the What's On My Mind series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue affecting the investment management industry. In today's segment, we're reviewing the movie Groundhog Day. Well, more specifically, we're reviewing that funny deja vu feeling we get from seeing another DOL fiduciary rule get adopted, given what's transpired over the last few years. As the wise philosopher Phil Connors, a la Bill Murray, once said in that great cinematic masterpiece, you want a prediction about the weather? You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you for the rest of your lives. He may not have known it at the time, but Connors, or... Murray was really foreshadowing the amazing resilience of the five-part test from the DOL's reinstated 1975 regulation for determining whether a person is an investment advice fiduciary. And while the five-part test may not have ever been cold or gray, for many of us in the industry, the five-part test has lasted the entirety of our lives, or for many of us, certainly our, our professional lives, and it's likely going to continue on now in perpetuity, but more on that in a bit. On December 18th, the DOL formally adopted a new prohibited transaction class exemption, PTE 2020-02, Improving Investment Advice for Workers and Retirees. The transaction exemption is for persons who are fiduciaries under ERISA as a result of providing investment advice. The new exemption allows these fiduciaries to receive compensation and engage in certain transactions that otherwise would be prohibited under ERISA and the IRS code, Section 4975, Tax on Prohibited Transactions. Let's start with a quick history lesson. Bing! Causing an even bigger uproar than that Ned Ryerson whistling belly button trick at the Case Western High School talent show, in 2016, the DOL passed the Fiduciary Rule 1.0, shocking the industry and causing great tumult to internal compliance procedures everywhere. The roller coaster ride continued when, in 2018, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the 2016 fiduciary rule and associated exemptions and amendments, thus forcing the DOL in July of 2018 to adopt a temporary enforcement policy in Field Assistance Bulletin 2018-02. Flash forward to July of this year, the DOL issued the proposal for this new class exemption and, at the same time, issued a technical amendment removing the 2016 fiduciary rule from the Code of Federal Regulations and reinstating the regulatory text of the DOL's 1975 regulation that was in place prior to the 2016 fiduciary rule and Interpretive Bulletin 96-1, which concerns certain parts of participant investment education. Okay, (laughs) so where are we now and what's in this new exemption? The new class exemption would permit certain investment advice fiduciaries, i.e., SEC and state-registered RIAs, broker-dealers, banks, and insurance companies, and of course all of their respective employees, to 1. Receive compensation as a result of providing investment advice, and 2. Engage in principal transactions, including riskless principal transactions and certain other covered principal transactions. Reliance on the exemption by eligible investment advice fiduciaries requires compliance with several conditions, including One, meeting certain impartial conduct standards set forth in the exemption, which are, one, a best interest standard, two, a reasonable compensation standard, and three, a requirement to make no materially misleading statements about recommended investment transactions and other relevant matters. In addition to that, another condition, you need to uh, have a disclosure that includes, one, an acknowledgement that the advice provider is a fiduciary, 
Two, a description of the services being provided and material conflicts of interest. Again, those need to be accurate and meaningful and not misleading in all respects. And three, a justification for a rollover recommendation prior to engaging in a rollover recommended pursuant to the exemption. Some other conditions, there must be adoption of policies and procedures prudently designed to ensure compliance with the impartial conduct standards. And finally, you need to conduct a retrospective annual review. Finally, and as alluded to by Mr. Murray, the preamble to the grant of the new exemption includes what the DOL refers to as final interpretive guidance regarding the five-part test from the DOL's reinstated 1975 regulation for determining whether a person is an investment advice fiduciary. The interpretive guidance provides the DOL's views on the application of certain elements of the five-part test and its views on when advice to roll over plan assets to individual retirement accounts and annuities could be considered fiduciary investment advice. The DOL stated that its action broadly aligned with the best interest standard in the impartial conduct standards in the new exemption, with the conduct standards in the SEC's Reg BI and the fiduciary duty of registered investment advisors under the U.S. securities laws. The effective date of the new exemption is set for February 16th, 2021. And unlike the Ned Ryerson whistling belly button trick, this is going to be something you're going to want to remember and something you're going to want to account for in your compliance programs in the very near future. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Craig Watanabe. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Feel free to send us questions and give us your feedback by checking us out on LinkedIn, you can search for Compliance and Context Podcast, or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. <laughs>